A warning that this episode contains explicit language as well as descriptions of violence. Marvin, tell me your full name and where you are right now. Okay, my name is Marvin Lewis Guy. I'm in the Bell County Jail in uh, Bell County, Texas, pursuant to uh, a no-knock search warrant that was executed on my uh, residence in Killeen, Texas, on May 9th. 2014. That's a long time ago. Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. Marvin has been in jail since the morning of the raid on his home. That Friday in May, eight years ago. Police went to his apartment thinking they were going to find drugs. The SWAT team shattered his bedroom window with a metal pole and hurled a battering ram into his front door while he was sleeping. Marvin says he had no idea it was the police. So, he picked up a gun. The window busted out, and I turned, and I fired out the window. And so, having no idea it was the police, you know, thinking that it was a robbery or somebody was trying to come in the house to kill us. And then... Officers unleashed a hail of bullets. Four Colleen officers were shot. One later died in a hospital. When it was all over, police found no drugs inside Marvin's home. Marvin claims that police accidentally shot the detective during the chaotic raid. But police say that Marvin killed the detective. And he was charged with capital murder. If convicted, Marvin could face the death penalty. This case was a nightmare for everyone involved. But these violent confrontations keep happening, and they always have. I'm Jen Abelson. And I'm Nicole Dunka. We're investigative reporters with The Washington Post. This is Broken Doors. A series about no-knock warrants, the controversial tactic that allows police to force their way into homes without warning. The threshold for a no-knock warrant is very high. I know they didn't have probable cause. Probable cause don't mean shit in Amor, Mississippi. That means to sum it up until they shot the wrong person. This is our final episode, how we got here and where we're going. Over the course of our investigation, we've looked at nearly two dozen fatalities involving no-knock warrants and examined hundreds of other questionable warrants. We found a lot of similarities in these cases and learned how easy it can be for police to carry out one of the most aggressive and intrusive forms of policing. During our reporting, we kept coming across the rationale that law enforcement officials have used for decades to justify these raids. They say no-knock warrants are a necessary tool to preserve evidence and protect officers. But cases like Marvin's challenge that idea. It's one of many examples that have made people in the justice system and the public question whether no-knocks are worth the risk. You're having citizens getting shot, and you're having police getting shot. 
You know, neither one of them is a good look, and it shouldn't be happening. We're going to continue to explore that fallout through Marvin's case and through another deadly no-knock raid in Texas. And we'll revisit the story that inspired this investigation. The police killing of Breonna Taylor in 2020. In order to figure out where we are now with no-knocks, it's important to first go back and understand how politics set a lot of this into motion. The U.S. Constitution, the Fourth Amendment, actually protects people against unreasonable searches. The idea is tied to a legal concept called the Castle Doctrine, which has its roots in English common law. As in, your home is your castle, and you have the right to defend it. But in a 1963 Supreme Court opinion, several justices said police could lawfully enter a home without knocking and announcing themselves in certain circumstances. The next year, New York's Republican governor, Nelson Rockefeller, pushed for a no-knock law. Then other states started passing their own versions. This was all happening against the backdrop of the assassinations of President John F. Kennedy. Two priests who were with President Kennedy say he is dead. And Martin Luther King Jr. Dr. Martin Luther King has been shot to death in Memphis, Tennessee. Protests against the Vietnam War. And a push for civil rights. There was a growing counterculture movement and a rise in drug use. You see, these drugs affect your judgment, concentration, particularly LSD. They cause changes in your brain. Across the country, states were grappling with an explosion in violent crime. During the 1960s, those crime rates more than doubled. All of this was used to stoke fear in communities across America. In 1968, Richard Nixon ran for president on a tough-on-crime platform, promising to clean up the streets and make the country safer. We owe it to the decent and law-abiding citizens of America to take the offensive against the criminal forces that threaten their peace and their security, and to rebuild respect for law across this country. I pledge to you, the wave of crime is not going to be the wave of the future in America. Nixon had a team of policy advisors who were instrumental in pushing for a new law that allowed federal authorities to use no-knock warrants. One of those advisors still works in Washington, D.C., and he was willing to talk about the work he did back then. Nice hello. to meet you. How are you doing? I'm nice. Jen. Well, hello, Jen. I'm Don Santarelli. Good to meet Hi. you. I'm Nicole Dunka. Nice to meet you. Hello. Great. And in the old days, if you if you were Bob Woodward, he'd be taking me to lunch. Okay. Yes. Right. Oh. He had we, a very, we already <laughs> messed up. <laughs> Nicole and I went with audio producer Sabby Robinson to Don's office, which looked like a museum of American political history. There were photos with presidents and plaques and certificates for his work. Don got involved with federal crime policy early in his career. In a framed note, President Lyndon Johnson thanked Don for being, quote, a real hard-ass on crime. Nixon took notice of Don and brought him on to work on his 68 campaign. So when Nixon became president, Don worked on his crime legislation. 
In one photo, there's a young Don engulfed by reporters. Well, this is... This is not a favorite, it's a revelation. Mm. Here am I briefing the press. Look at the body language. What a smart-ass kid. I mean, just full of himself. Can you describe what you're, how you look in that? Arrogant. How old are you there? Maybe 32, something like that. I was expected to be the spokesman for the administration's crime policy. Whether I invented it, whether I believed in it, although I believed in this one. Don helped sell the idea of no-knocks to lawmakers for Nixon. It was a simple issue that a lot of politicians could get behind. When did you first hear about no-knocks and how? I won't be able to pinpoint a fulcrum moment. Um, It just became... There was a great deal of political hot air, political energy, to do anything that was, quote, anti-crime. And since crime at that time was almost entirely believed to be drug-related. So what do you do to make the prosecution of drug offenses easier? Police repeatedly said that by the time they knocked on the door, the toilet flushed and the evidence disappeared. It was part of the arsenal of anti-crime measures. And I bought it hook, line, and sinker, and became an advocate for it. By 1969, more than two dozen states already had no-knock laws on the books. But these high-risk searches weren't used very often in those early years. A New York Times article from 1970 said that out of almost 2,000 narcotics cases, New York State Police only used the law 12 times in one year. But that same year, in 1970, Nixon signed off on a law that allowed federal agents to use no-knocks. We talked about this history with Radley Balco, an opinion columnist at The Washington Post. In 2013, he published the book on the militarization of America's police forces. It's called Rise of the Warrior Cop. Radley says politicians, more than police, pushed no-knocks into the national spotlight. Nixon specifically ran on the no-knock raid as part of his 1968 tough-on-crime platform and really um, encouraged federal narcotics agents, and then we see states across the country kind of follow suit, uh, to use these really hyper-aggressive tactics as a way of showing that we were tough on drugs and tough on drug you know, offenders. Federal narcotics officers start kicking down doors left and right all across the country. Um, And then a very peculiar thing happens. Um, They they start getting the wrong house. Innocent people end up getting, you know, victimized, terrorized, in some cases shot. As these botched raids made headlines in the 70s, activists pushed back and politicians began raising concerns. Many viewed these new anti-crime policies as an attack on the Black community. No knock, the man will say, to keep that man from beating his wife. 
1972, the famed poet and musician Gil Scott Heron even released a poem about no knocks. No knocked on my brother Fred Hampton, bullet holes all over the place. No knocked on my brother Michael Harrison, jammed a shotgun against his skull. For my protection, who's gonna protect me from you? Those concerns escalated in the early 70s. The interesting thing is, I think, about this history is that there was a time when Congress was sort of horrified by what was happening with these raids and that innocent people were getting victimized by them and, you know, had some shame and remorse. Congress held hearings and actually voted to repeal the federal no-knock law in 1974. But this move was largely symbolic. Radley said that police kept requesting no-knocks and judges kept approving them. And the use of no-knocks ramped up again after President Ronald Reagan came into office in the 1980s. The Reagan administration took Nixon's drug war metaphor and made it very literal. They encouraged and set up grants for these joint task forces where anti-drug police groups were training with military groups. Over the next several decades, deploying SWAT teams for narcotics raids became common. And in response, people kept challenging whether no-knock raids violated the constitutional right to be protected from unreasonable searches and seizures. In the opinion of the court number 945707, There were several key cases on no-knocks that came before the U.S. Supreme Court in the 1990s. What is a constitutional requirement on police officers if they have a valid warrant appear at your door Can they enter without knocking and announcing? In a case in 1995, the justices ruled that police were generally required to knock and announce themselves before searching a home. But they also acknowledged that there could be exceptions. And a few years later, there was another landmark case, Richards versus Wisconsin. Justices unanimously rejected Wisconsin's argument that police were never required to knock and announce themselves for searches in felony drug investigations. Here's an exchange between Justice Sandra Day O'Connor and Wisconsin's Attorney General James Doyle. May I ask you, in, in doing that, if, if you have any statistical evidence that you want to point out to us that demonstrates that it is more dangerous to officers to knock and announce than not to? Is there any place we could look for that? Your Honor, the best that we can do is what is in our brief, which shows that drug dealing is dangerous and it's dangerous to police. But uh, frankly, the... No, I mean, as far as we know, they're as apt to be hurt if they don't knock and announce as if they do. We we aren't able to make that decision, apparently. In their ruling, the court said police need to justify the risk for each case. Every drug search couldn't automatically be a no-knock. So time and time again, it was decided at the highest court that no-knocks could keep happening. But it became clear that no-knocks were meant to be exceptions, used only in specific circumstances. Don Santarelli, who helped shape no-knock policy during the Nixon administration, says he looks back at that time with regrets. It was so, such a simple issue. Break down the door and preserve the evidence. I'm embarrassed to think that I was an advocate of that. You you believed that they needed to preserve the evidence. Yes. They could flush down the toilet, that this, this was a huge problem for officers across the country. 
yes, and you'll never understand it because you didn't live in those times, it was a simplistic period. It was knee-jerk. It was a knee-jerk period. I, I wish I could be more intellectually uh, analytical, but like all politics, the more, more you can simplify something, however inaccurate it may be, or however unthoughtful it may be, it works for the moment. That moment has now lasted more than 50 years. There's always going to be no-knock raids. It is inherent in the criminal justice system that there will be legally no-knock raids. I am not hopeful that we will reform the excesses of violent society and violent and aggressive law enforcement. Cops and robbers forever. Today, experts estimate that across the country, police carry out tens of thousands of no-knock raids every year, mostly in drug-related searches. Only Minnesota calls on its police to report their no-knock warrants to a state agency. But that only started last year. None of the state courts or the District of Columbia track the use of no-knock warrants. Well, I mean, you need to put it in perspective, though. No-knock warrants are not used as, as widely as, as a lot of people would like to think that they are. They're generally used in, in, in a need to protect the safety uh, of the officers involved. That's Patrick Yose. He's the president of the National Fraternal Order of Police, the country's largest police organization. We spoke with him last year at their D.C. office. We need to have these good, open discussions and analyze what we do. But at the same time, we need to recognize that when we take tools away from law enforcement, we take away our ability to be able to make our communities safer. I asked him why police use no-knocks. Well, I, I don't like talking about hypotheticals, but, but really that's what we're talking about. There may be instances in, in the circumstances around that where officer safety with the element of surprise may be to an advantage. If you're asking me to, to give you an exact example, I don't know if I'm comfortable doing that because every single one is going to be different and they should be based on their own merits. But other law enforcement leaders gave us some examples of when they thought no-knocks are necessary. Like when there's an active threat to human life or in child pornography cases where evidence can easily be destroyed. Patrick also brought up the fact that all police work is dangerous. It's real simple to sit back and say, yes, uh, you know, we should have done something different one way or other. But, but if you want, I can go with you when we leave here, uh, just a few blocks from here to a memorial that has 22,000 names on it. And every one of these people showed up to work every, each day to protect their communities. And these variables have all played a part in their, in their not going home at the end of their shift. So this is, this is not an easy job, at, not by a long shot. And we, we can easily analyze in the comfort of, of this table, uh, sitting here, talking about the complexities of law enforcement and how maybe it's overreacting. But we, we're missing the point that we lose a lot of officers every single year from these dynamics that exist in, in today's society. And to take away tools for us you know, that, that may provide that safety is just a little bit of a concern. 
The National Law Enforcement Officers Memorial Fund shared a list of officers who died while serving warrants since 2015. And our analysis of these cases shows that at least 22 officers have been killed while carrying out search and arrest warrants at a home. They don't specifically break out no-knock searches, but we found at least one in their data and have identified another in our own reporting during that time period. And these violent confrontations have led some judges to reconsider the whole idea that no-knocks are safer for police. Anger boiling over tonight after suspected drug dealers shoot several Houston police officers who were trying to shut down a drug house. Four officers were shot, a fifth injured his knee. Two are in critical condition tonight. One of the bloodiest no-knock raids in recent memory happened in Houston on January 28, 2019. A narcotics squad forced their way into the home of a white couple, Regina Nicholas and Dennis Tuttle. An officer killed their dog as police burst through the door. Then officers said Dennis opened fire and they shot back. Police killed Dennis and Regina in their living room. The injured officers survived, but one was left paralyzed. Judge Gordon Markham had been at home watching the news on television when he learned what happened. He'd been a municipal court judge in Houston for a long time and had signed off on many no-knock warrants during his time on the bench. Instantly, he knew that he was the one who had signed the warrant. How did, what was going through your mind at that time? Oh, the, the pain and suffering that our police officer had taken. I went to speak with him last summer at his home in a gated community in Houston. I didn't have an audio recording kit with me, so I used my phone to record our conversation. The tape quality isn't the best. My gosh, we had a zillion officers blocking off the streets everywhere and all. Mm-hmm. So they apparently were really ready for a battle. Eventually, an investigation by the Houston Police Department found that the officer who requested the no-knock warrant had lied on the affidavit. The department has declined to talk about the case because of a pending lawsuit by the families of the victims. The officer who requested the warrant had said that a confidential informant had bought heroin at Regina and Dennis's home. But in court documents, the Houston Police Department said the officer later admitted that didn't happen. Judge Markham retired a month after the deadly raid. When he sat down with me, it was the first time he'd ever spoken publicly about this case. Before this raid, Judge Markham had always thought that no-knocks did help protect officers. He says he doesn't regret signing the warrant, since he'd believed the officer was telling the truth. Of all the years that I saw him, I never had a police officer ever proven that they had lied. That's the first one. But the raid did have a lasting impact on him. Has your attitude changed at all about why no knocks are necessary? I, well, I, I would think that you really just couldn't sign a no knock anymore. You at all? At all. Like, you personally wouldn't do that anymore? If you were on the bench? I wouldn't sign one. Mm -hmm. 
Why is that? Just because of the fact that uh, there's a possibility of so many officers being hurt and killed and all of that. There's no reason to put them in harm's way. After the break, the question of accountability in a conversation with the mother of Brianna Taylor. This podcast is sponsored by Monarch Money. Are you saving to reach your financial goals? Reaching those goals isn't just about getting more money, but by managing what you have. And the best way to manage your money? Monarch Money. Monarch Money is a new kind of finance app that's intuitive, powerful, ad-free, and takes the headaches out of budgeting. Try it free when you go to monarchmoney.com slash podcast. Monarch puts all your accounts, investments, transactions, and finances at your fingertips. With a complete view of your finances, you'll gain insights on your spending and find new ways to save. Plus, Monarch lets you customize your dashboard, collaborate with your partner, set custom budgets and goals, and track your progress toward them. See why Mint users are turning to Monarch Money and loving it, and why the Wall Street Journal named Monarch Money the best budgeting app overall. Get a 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash podcast. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H money.com slash podcast for your free trial. monarchmoney.com slash podcast. Marvin Guy watches a lot of news from the Bell County Jail in Texas, about three hours outside of Houston. And he remembers seeing the coverage of Dennis and Regina being killed and the officers getting injured. It, it just feels terrible, man. You know, it feels terrible. They telling you that you have a right to defend against an unannounced intruder. And then the judge is, is making the police an intruder and saying that it's safe. No, I don't think it's safe. I think it's dangerous. For the last eight years, he's been in jail awaiting trial on a $4.5 million bond. Before the raid on his apartment, Marvin had spent much of his adult life behind bars. He's Black and grew up in Indiana. Both of his parents died by the time he was nine, and he was split up from his siblings. He dropped out of school and started getting into trouble. According to court and police records we have, He's been convicted over the years on charges including bank robbery and possession of a firearm as a felon. A few years before the raid, Marvin moved to Colleen, Texas, where several of his siblings lived. He says he was trying to turn things around and get on a better path. He had been out of prison for several years, held a steady job at a restaurant, and started dating a woman named Shirley. From there, my life began to take off. You know, I met somebody I was compatible with. We started going to the gym every day. I continued to work and uh, make money and pay my own bills. And, and it was just nice, man, you know. Marvin told me about his criminal history and said that he had used drugs. You know, I smoked marijuana. I drank a, a beer. And sometimes I did use the other substance, you know. I mean, that's just reality, you know what I mean? But I'm not a bad person. That don't make me a bad person. But I'm just being truthful. They're going to do a sweeping under the rug, take me to trial, 
make me look like this drug dealer when I wasn't selling anybody any drugs. Marvin had gotten on the radar of local police in 2011 when he was a suspect in a narcotics investigation. But according to records, police didn't find any drugs or arrest him back then. At the time of the raid in 2014, Marvin was 49. He was living in a tough neighborhood in Colleen, which sits in the shadow of the Fort Hood Army base. Marvin became a target after a confidential informant told police that Marvin was selling drugs from his car and that he often carried a white bag of marijuana and cocaine. Officers conducted surveillance near Marvin's apartment building and said they saw Marvin meeting with people who walked or drove up next to his vehicle. This, according to the officer requesting the warrant, was, quote, indicative of an individual involved in the distribution of illegal controlled substances. This prompted Colleen police to seek a no-knock warrant for Marvin's apartment. They also noted his criminal history and that the informant told police that Marvin was frequently armed with a handgun. Police have released very little of the case file, but we were able to piece together the details of the raid from state investigative records and notes that Marvin's former lawyer took on the police reports. So on May 9th, 2014, around 5.45 a.m., a SWAT team surrounded his apartment. One officer shattered the window in his front bedroom while another tried to break open the door with a battering ram. Marvin said he had two handguns for protection and he had them nearby as he slept with his back to the window. His girlfriend, Shirley, was also inside the apartment. And then, remember, Marvin began shooting out the window. The SWAT team dove for cover and rapidly returned fire. One officer, who had taken the pin out of a flashbang device, slipped and dropped it, setting off a massive boom and a thick cloud of smoke. Marvin dropped his gun and ran toward the back door. He saw lights and heard people yelling, police. According to records, police told him to get on the ground and an officer put a gun to Marvin's head. The officer immediately got the pistol with me, called me, you know, the N-word, telling me that he was going to kill me. He was going to kill me. I don't know what happened after that. I must have passed out. Shirley came out the front door, but when she hesitated to move closer to officers, one pushed her to the ground, and she ended up with two broken ribs and a busted upper lip. And then there were the four officers who had been hit with gunfire. Two were protected by their body armor. A third was shot in the leg. And Detective Charles Dinwiddie, a leader of clean SWAT team, was shot once in the face. He's the officer who died a couple of days later. I was very sad to hear that. You know, right now today, I really feel bad about that because uh, no one wants to see that. You know, I have no ill will toward the police or nothing like that. Detective Dinwiddie was 47 years old. He left behind a wife and two children. Days after he died, his sister, Ellen Dinwiddie-Smith, talked about her brother at a press conference in Colleen. He loved spending time with his family, both sides. Um, he, He created a bond 
between all of us, he was the glue. Um, His family and friends knew him as Chuck. He'd been with the department for 18 years. Chuck was a warrior, the guy that ran toward the gunfire. Chuck loved God. He loved his family, his job, especially the SWAT team. And he leaves behind a lot of people that are trying to make sense of God's plan and timing. We reached out to some of Detective Dinwiddie's relatives to learn more about him and their views on no knocks. But his sister Ellen said that no one in their family would comment before Marvin's trial. The judge overseeing Marvin's criminal case issued a gag order, so the Colleen police and Marvin's lawyers declined to comment. Citing the unusually emotional nature of this case, the judge ruled that extensive media coverage would harm the judicial process. His lawyers challenged the gag order last year, but the judge ruled against them. Marvin's charges include one count of capital murder and three counts of attempted capital murder. In the immediate aftermath of the raid, Marvin told police that he thought someone was breaking into his home. And again, no drugs were found in his apartment. Police said they did find a white powder in Marvin's car and a gram of suspected cocaine in a trash can outside. His case has been stalled for so long for various issues. Problems with Marvin's previous lawyers and accusations that the state wasn't turning over all the evidence. Marvin spends most of his days in a cell researching details about his case. The kind of charges you're facing are the most serious you could possibly face. What is it like facing a potential, you know, death penalty? Well, man, it's really tough, man, you know, and it's really scary. It's just really nerve-wracking. That's why I fight. You know, that's why I fight, because I know this is injustice. And it's really, it's really, it's it's scary to be in this position. Marvin's case reminded us of so many others we've investigated. Police deploying this dangerous and aggressive tactic while suspected drug offenders are sleeping. And then there was the case that put a spotlight on no-knock warrants unlike ever before. The reason why we started this entire investigation. I'm just kind of hanging out in here where I have a bunch of artwork and just a lot of stuff that's been done in honor of Brianna. So there's a number of things in here, paintings, pictures, cups, anything people have done, cards. You know, we just kind of try and create space for it all. Tamika Palmer is Brianna Taylor's mom. When we were wrapping up our investigation, we connected with her on a video call. She was sitting in what she calls the Brianna room. There's a little lamp up there. I don't know if you guys can see that up there with her name. Um, a bunch of little drawings. Uh, people have done different drawings and paintings. Uh, We shared our reporting with her and talked about what the last two years have meant for her and her family. What's that like, seeing her face become 
this symbol for a movement to, you know, end racial injustice and aggressive policing. How do you feel about that, seeing her face everywhere for this kind of fight? It's a blessing and a curse to see these people come together and stand for anything is amazing. So you, you're grateful for that, to just see people come together. I hate that it's for her. I hate that. On March 13th, 2020, in Louisville, Kentucky, Brianna Taylor was getting ready for a trip to Mississippi with her friends. And she was asking her mom for advice on what she should wear. They were going to this beach. So every day she's calling me, trying on these, I FaceTiming with these outfits. What do you think about this? I'm like, listen, just wear it. It looks like... <laughs> Well, I'm going to think I'm going to put this with this. Because she, she was huge on um, how she looked. Brianna called her mom later to let her know that she and her boyfriend, Kenneth Walker, were going to go out to dinner that night. Then Tamika got another call. After midnight. But she said it wasn't unusual for Brianna or Kenny to reach out late at night. But when I answered, um, I could just hear Kenny screaming. Uh, Brianna's name and, and crying and uh, so I'm like you know like what's going on and he said somebody kicked the door in and uh, I think Bria shot and I, I just kind of dropped the phone. Tamika spent hours trying to figure out what happened. She couldn't get a hold of Kenny so she went to Brianna's apartment where police cars were crowding the street. And then the hospital. She eventually confronted an officer outside Brianna's home. And so by then, I start screaming at him, like, where's Brianna? Why won't you tell me where she is? And he just kind of looked at me and said, well, well, ma'am, she's still in the apartment. And, and I just knew what that meant at that time. She learned that Kenny thought someone was breaking into the apartment, so he fired his gun. An officer ended up injured. Kenny was charged with attempted murder. Soon, questions surfaced about police surveillance, about false information on the affidavit, and whether officers should have even been at Brianna's in the first place. It was only listening to the news that Tamika heard that Brianna was targeted because of a drug investigation. The first thing that that stuck with me was when they the, the hearing on the news that they were in a shootout with drug with a drug dealer, which was insane to me to know Brianna is like like I just, I couldn't believe that they would have said that on TV or on anything. I I just couldn't believe that. A judge has signed off on five search warrants looking for drugs, weapons, and mail related to illegal drug activity. Brianna was named on one of the no-knock warrants because police claimed that her ex-boyfriend was receiving packages at her apartment and drugs could have been stored at her home. But no drugs were found. In the aftermath, police said they actually knocked and announced. The state attorney general mentioned this when he declined to press charges against the officer who fatally shot Brianna. According to media reports and investigative records, none of the neighbors initially recalled hearing police identify themselves 
Officials said one witness later claimed he heard police announce their presence. But since then, he's given conflicting accounts. Bullets were going into other neighbors. The bullets went upstairs. There's a pregnant woman and her five-year-old in the neighboring apartment behind her. Bullets went in there. You not only risked Brianna's life, you risked eight, seven other families' lives. You're, every officer out there in their families' lives. Like, it made no sense. And you got absolutely nothing out of there. Absolutely nothing. Brianna's death set off protests across the country and sparked the first serious challenge to no-knock raids in decades. Some communities, including the city where Brianna lived, passed new laws and ordinances. Today, Louisville's mayor signed Brianna's law after the Metro Council unanimously banned the use of no-knock warrants. And others took action at the state level. In the last two years, Virginia, Connecticut, and Tennessee passed legislation banning no-knocks. Oregon and Florida had already prohibited them. Virginia becomes the first state to take this action since Brianna's death in March. According to Campaign Zero, a police reform initiative, 21 cities and 29 states have restricted no-knocks in some way, but many haven't banned them entirely. On the federal level, the U.S. Department of Justice now limits no-knocks to situations where there is an imminent threat of physical violence. But other proposed changes stalled. The George Floyd Justice and Policing Act that would have restricted no-knocks never got signed. We spoke with a couple of leaders from the American Judges Association. It's the largest judges organization in the country. They told us that there's been some discussion over whether judges should only sign no-knocks in limited cases or stop approving them altogether. And then you also have movement in the opposite direction. In Wisconsin, lawmakers proposed a bill this year that would prevent restrictions on no-knock warrants. I wanted to get your sense about sort of what you think about the progress that's been made since what happened to Brianna. And do you have concerns at all about the momentum stalling out? I definitely have concerns about it. I think that's what happens a lot. You know, there's all this, people get all charged up and there's all this momentum and, and then they, they slow roll these things. So, because they want you to lose faith. They want people to forget. They want people to move on. So then they're able to continue to act and do what it is they're doing. Um, and that's that's just been the way of life for years and years. People lose focus so easily and forget um, the focus until here we are facing this again. And that's what happened. After police killed Amir Locke this past February, Tamika knew all too well what his family was going through. Police killed the 22-year-old during an early morning no-knock raid in Minneapolis. He wasn't the target of the investigation. At a press conference, his family and activists demanded national change. Pastor Amir Locke, Locke now. Pastor Amir Locke, 
The day we began releasing the series, news broke that prosecutors in Minnesota would not file charges against the officer who fatally shot Amir Locke. And it doesn't seem like there will ever be a criminal trial for Brianna's death. Louisville police detective Brett Hankison was charged with wanton endangerment for shooting bullets through Brianna's window and her glass door that went into a neighboring apartment. Detective Hankison was fired by the department, but has been fighting to get his job back. He was later found not guilty of the criminal charges. We reached out to his attorney, Stu Matthews. He said he believes Detective Hankison committed no crime that night. The other officers involved in the raid haven't been charged. The state eventually dropped the attempted murder charge against Brianna's boyfriend, Kenny. I can't believe that people are still doing this thing, you know, like, and no one's been held accountable for what happened to Brianna. And to have to stomach this day all over again is insane to me. It's, I've said this a hundred times every, it's still March the 13th to me. There won't be a civil trial for Brianna's death either because her family agreed to a $12 million settlement from the city. But to them, that doesn't equal justice. The city of Louisville didn't admit any wrongdoing in the settlement, and the U.S. Justice Department is still investigating the Louisville Metropolitan Police Department for broader civil rights violations, including the agency's use of force. My whole world has changed to lose I, like, I lost a part of me, you know, like, I can't walk away from this and and let them think that it's okay, because Lord knows, I think that they, they're hoping that I give up to be done with this whole thing, but she didn't deserve that, so I can't give up, I can't walk away. We started our investigation because we wanted to find out how many people have been killed in these dangerous raids. And whether there's any accountability when things go wrong. We now know that since 2015, at least 22 people have been killed by police, carrying out no-knock warrants. But there's so little transparency around no-knocks that it's hard to know the total number of fatalities and just how many survivors are out there. We've seen how little information officers need to get this kind of warrant. They don't need a name. They don't need to identify whether children or elderly people live there. And while police are supposed to explain why they need a no-knock, we found many examples where they don't justify the risk. We know that there is little gatekeeping. Judges who are supposed to be the last line of defense don't usually question the claims officers are making. We saw how an entire block got upended during a multi-house raid for a small amount of drugs. But police keep defending this intrusive tactic. A warrant that can take minutes to approve can have devastating consequences that last a lifetime. We can't stop thinking about people like 
Wanda Stigall and Jessica Kluot, who were there when police shot and killed their loved ones. And how those survivors ended up trapped in the criminal justice system for years. For them and others like Benji Edwards, they're still looking for justice, for something to change. So is Marvin Guy. Those people in Washington, D.C., they need to get their act together. You know, it's unconstitutional. I mean, I've been writing down in D.C. I've been writing down there to those lawmakers and telling them, hey, man, what's going on here? While sitting behind bars, Marvin saw the news that the city where he had lived, Colleen, actually banned no-knock warrants last year. The law was pushed by the family of a man who was killed by police in a no-knock raid in 2019. But that didn't change anything for Marvin's case. As we were getting ready to release this series, I was suddenly unable to send him emails or set up video chats. And then I got a phone call. My name's April Bradford. Hi, April. I'm Marvin's uh, son, Mom. April and Marvin had a child together in the late 90s. They still talk all the time. And she was calling to give me a message from Marvin. He wants you to know that they took your name off the visiting, I mean, call log, where he can't call you at all. She told me the jail had altered the list of people who could contact Marvin. Not only was I taken off, but apparently so were others who wanted to speak with him about his case. He said that he believed that they blocked him because he don't want you to get his story out. Wow. And I didn't, they, I they didn't blocked know. him. He said all the people that he was been contacting with to speak on his story, everybody they they blocked it. Everybody called from him going calling out to to correspond about his story. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm just you know I'm I'm not trying to you know I'm working as a journalist, so I just want to be able to get his story and to talk about it and um you know and to be able to understand what happened in his view of that day and yeah. So, um, yeah, I well, I'm gonna, and, and I can only give you so much because I wasn't, I, I mean, I wasn't there, but I just, I, it's just something is not right with this situation. When I called the Bell County Jail, a man who answered the phone confirmed someone had removed my name from the communication system. He said it was probably because I wasn't on Marvin's approved inmate visitation list. But I kept trying to reach Marvin and left him several voicemails. And a few days before we were going to publish this episode, my phone rang. Hello, this is a prepaid collect call from... Marvin. An inmate at a correctional facility. Marvin said he'd been thinking a lot since we last talked. There's just a whole lot of things go through my mind like that, you know, as far as like, is it going to be a trial? I wonder about, wow, my health is getting bad. Am I going to, you know, make it? And again... We went back to the raid. I always go back to the day that this happened. At the end of the day, I have great, great sorrow. When something like this happened, it's a real tragedy. And it's a real tragedy for both sides. I had so many other questions for Marvin, but his calls have time limits. This call will be terminated in two minutes. And we never finished our conversation that day.
This May is the eighth anniversary of the raid on Marvin's home. He's been behind bars the entire time, awaiting trial. There's been no accountability for what happened that day, for anyone involved. I'm Nicole Dunka. And I'm Jen Abelson. This episode was produced by Sabi Robinson. Additional production by Lena Muhammad. Our editors are Renita Jablonski and David Fallis. Additional editing by Theo Balcom and Sarah Childress. Copy editing by Laura Mahalski. Courtney Kahn is our projects editor. This show is also produced by supervising senior producer Rena Flores. Original music, sound design, mixing, and theme by Ted Muldoon. Special thanks to the estate of Gil Scott Heron and its administrator, Rumal Rackley, for the audio of Gil Scott Heron's no-knock poem. Logo designed by Caddy Huertas. Webpage designed by Jake Crump. Art direction and editing by Amy Cavanale, Matthew Callahan, Chris Barber, and Tara McCarty. Additional production and support from Kim Bellware, Carmela Boykin, Phoebe Connolly, Kat Downs-Mulder, Kathleen Floyd, Dave Jorgensen, Emma Coomer, Greg Manifold, Jordan Melendrez, Angel Mendoza, Allison Michaels, Robert Miller, Sergio Non, Martine Powers, Casey Silvestri, Krissa Thompson, Claire Tran, Emily Tao, Chris Vasquez, and Kanya Krit von Kajorn. Special thanks to Dalton Bennett, Alice Kreitz, Jennifer Jenkins, Nate Jones, Jeff Lean, Travis Lyles, Ted Melnick, Jane Orenstein, Emily Sabins, Corey Suzuki, Julie Tate, Hannah Thacker, Andrew Botran, Julie Vitkovskaya, Joy Sharony, and the Post Reports team. Contributors from Northwestern University's Medill Investigative Lab are Jordan Anderson, Rachel Baldoff, Monique Beals, Molly Burke, Elon Chung, Rebecca Holland, Michael Korsh, Kelly Mylan, Madison Muller, and Divya Schreeder. Contributors from the American University Washington Post Practicum Program are Mackenzie Beard, Vanessa Montalbano, Megan Ruggles, and Carly Welch. While this is the last episode in the series, we have some bonus content coming your way soon. You can access that by subscribing to the Washington Post channel on Apple Podcasts. That will also give you access to all of our podcasts, ad-free. We spoke with more than 100 sources over the course of our reporting, traveled to communities across the country, and spent the last year requesting and reviewing thousands of documents. Investigative podcasts like this wouldn't be possible without the people who subscribe to The Post. We have a special deal right now where you can get four weeks free if you become a subscriber today. Go to WashingtonPost.com slash Broken Doors and click subscribe now to support our work. If you want to share your own experiences with No Knocks or let us know anything else, send an email to Broken Doors at WashPost.com. 